Cape Cod and the islands have miles of beautiful beaches, multi-million dollar homes, and links to famous families such as the Kennedys. But that's only part of our identity. We also have poverty, homelessness, and a fragile environment, feeling the impacts of population growth and development. Many nonprofits have sprung up to address some of these issues as well as to support our artistic and cultural communities. Joining us to talk about philanthropy on the Cape and Islands, Rose Resnick, Vice President of Development Solutions of New England. Welcome. Thank you, Mindy. Mike Brajali of the is executive director of the Cape Cod Foundation. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. All right, let's have a big picture. Nationally, uh, philanthropy is not down, even though we've uh, been through a recession since 2008. Why do you think that is, and does that hold true for our region, Rose? Actually, uh, there is a lot of good news in this area, and a lot of professional organizations do track this information. The New York Times recently did an article that said that there's not a lot of bad news coming from nonprofits. And a report from the Nonprofit Research Collaborative said that of those surveyed, more than half of those people said that they've seen increases in their donations, but nothing compared to 2007 when it was 69%. Mm. So uh, there are some charities, though, that are reporting that their donors are giving less money. Uh, A lot are reluctant to sign on for multi-year pledges, and some are really taking a look at many different charities and where they want to give their donations, especially Mm -hmm. on the Cape. And Mike and I want to talk a little bit more about yeah, Cape Cod. Exactly. Well, uh, Cape and Islands viewed as uh, to some as a summer playground for the for the wealthy, but that's not a complete picture, as I mentioned at the top of the show. Is there a, a, this perception a challenge or is it an opportunity given the number of wealthy people who do spend time here? I, I think it's both. I, you know, I think it's a challenge when there is that misperception that everyone is wealthy, that uh, money is just kind of falling off the trees here. Um, the Cape has the same challenges that that every all communities have, um, and we have unique challenges in housing in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, I think there is an opportunity to use that as a teachable moment. That no, in fact, uh, Cape Cod is a diverse community with, with uh, a, a range of needs and challenges, and to take that misperception and and, and teach folks. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, from where, whatever wherever they're coming from, whether it's a donor or a nonprofit organization or uh, individuals who want to learn more about the community. And I also want to add that a recent study in Chronicle of Philanthropy, yay, yay, Massachusetts, but we ranked 47th in generosity in all the states. 47? 47th. Wow. However, the good news for the Cape and the Islands is that we give – 3.5% more of our income than the rest of Massachusetts. However, the national average is 4.5%. Mm. But the good news about the Cape Cod and the islands that organizations need to pay attention to is we raise 2.5% more dollars for the same populations in mm. other areas of the country. So our donors are very, very generous. Mm. One of the things, when, when you were talking about, uh, especially the summer visitors who have homes elsewhere, uh, and a lot of times a, a lot of their philanthropy is done where their main residence is, and then they come here, that's a challenge, I would think, for our local nonprofits. It is. And uh, speaking from the, from the Community Foundation perspective, um, we see this in other parts of the country, in the Florida Keys, Hilton mm-hmm. Head, Marin County, California. Uh, seasonal residents tend to give to their hometown, what they identify as their, their year-round uh, community. But it, it's – so it's that is truly a challenge, and it's not going to be easy to um, – 
to bring those folks over. But it does happen, and I think it's it's basic fundraising 101, uh, which I think Rose would appreciate, which is building those personal relationships, uh, fostering the connections, uh, bringing the donor community together with the nonprofit communities, identifying their passions and making those linkages. Yeah, I was identifying the passions right there. It is all about passion, isn't it? And it's also about impact of donor mm-hmm. of of where your donation's going to go and who's going to benefit. And uh, we did a market research study last year with Colorado, uh, Cape Cod Philanthropy Partners, and those people that responded said seventy five percent of their donations come from people who live year round on the Cape. Mm-hmm. So. People think all this money that's coming in for these our Cape Cod nonprofits are really coming from the people that live here. So is that the focus then? Do you spend more time, you know, cultivating those year-round people, or or I mean, how how do you deal with the seasonal versus the year-round? I think that the best thing nonprofits can do is concentrate on um, interacting, engaging their donors twelve months of the year, not just the four months when they think the rich people are here. Mm-hmm. And the way, as Mike said. If you want to go after that market that you're already not in, it has to be through networks. You have to find out if their passion matches your mission, mm-hmm. not just because they have money right. to, to give. Yeah, because people with the money to give, they get their, their doors knocked on all right. the time, right? That's yes. right. Yeah. Yes. Right. We're talking about philanthropy on the Cape and Islands. If you have a question or a comment, 866-999-4626. That's 866-999-4626. Our email address is the point at wgbh.org. How does our geography uh, play into giving? Uh, are the Cape and Island residents more likely to identify with uh, community, town, region as a whole? Mike, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, my thoughts uh, is, are, are yes. Um, I think there's a, a really... I've been here four months. I grew up on the other side of, of the bridge, uh, not too far away. And there was also a strong sense of community there. But I, I feel it. It's palpable. I think that's a, a great thing, a wonderful thing, and I think we can tap into that. And we're here in Woods Hole, part of Falmouth. Um, the Cape Cod Foundation is very fortunate to have the Falmouth Fund of the Cape Cod Foundation, which has grown uh, tremendously in a very short period of time. And that fund, uh, as part of our broader portfolio, will help uh, the people uh, of Falmouth. So mm-hmm. it creates a permanent endowed fund uh, that goes on you know, permanent forever. Mm-hmm. And um, it, to me, it's a great example of how people's local passion and commitment to their communities um, can can play out and be part of the uh, the broader foundation. And just work. for full disclosure, I must say I do I sit on the Falmouth Fund committee, so I just want to get that out there. Go ahead, Rose. I think that the when we're talking about the economic downturn and a lot of things people don't know about, I think my best piece of advice that I can give to nonprofits is to really pay attention to your donors and to steward your donors through the good times and the bad times because. You know, engage them, visit them, send them newsletters, be in contact, make phone calls, because those people that might be having some economic problems, even the wealthy, if their assets have gone down, will reward those who pay attention to them in the bad times, and they will be rewarded in mm-hmm. the good times. Yeah, that's a good point. So major donors versus average donors, how do you determine how to spend your resources and time, and, and can an average donor become a major donor? Absolutely is the answer. And the one thing that I want to make sure I get in here is that nonprofits on Cape Cod and the islands really make to sh- need to make sure that they have four to five funding sources. Uh, a lot rely on special events or just grants and direct mail, but none of those should exceed the 25% of the gross. And that being said, that all donors, they have to learn who their constituencies are 
what their donor motivations are. Why are they interested? Again, going back to that point, donors are motivated by your mission, your passion, your impact, your gift, the difference it makes, who benefits. Donors of any level aren't going to give you money because you need it. Mm -hmm. They need to feel that connection to your organization. And average donors need to be cultivated and engaged, as do those who have the potential to give a major gift. And each organization needs to determine what a major gift is to them. But the larger the gift... Uh, the longer it takes, and as my friend Karen Bissonette says, it's not a you know it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. Mm-hmm. And a lot of nonprofits in our region don't have the patience to wait that two or three years because they need the immediate cash. So my advice is to engage all your donors, average potential with major gifts. And also, people, look at your retention rates. What donors are you losing? You should have an 89% participation rate. So it's almost if you gather that all the information for major gifts, executive directors and development staff want to spend 90% of their time on 10% of their donors. But they should be paying attention right now to all their donors and retain your donors and communicate and engage. Well, I, I agree with everything Rose has just said. Uh, a broad, varied funding base is is the best way for a nonprofit to function and to thrive. But part of that broad, varied funding base are donors of all sizes. Uh, so smaller donors, average donors, large donors, even a um, it, you know if you if you look at a budget. Uh, and t- say ten, fifteen percent comes through small donations. That can that can play a significant role in whether the organization can grow and uh, take on new initiatives. So I think you spend um, time with all of your donor base. Certainly, larger donors uh, who are giving bigger amounts. It takes more cultivation mm-hmm. and building a longer term relationship. But again, I agree really, really with all of Rose's advice. There's on that. a couple things that are coming to my mind as you're as you're saying that. And one thing, just since you're mentioning small donors, I, I think too, Rose, this goes to your engaging and keeping the, those communication lines open. There may be somebody who has a passion for what you do and believes in your cause, uh, whatever that may be, but they don't have a lot of money, so they are a small donor, and it's it's important, I would think, for them to feel like you know what, my small donation along with these other that make up this ten percent really adds up to a pretty significant amount of money. Absolutely. And we're encouraging the nonprofits that we work with to talk about what the difference their donation makes. And every gift makes a difference and has an impact because small donations, as you said, Mindy, lead up to large donations. Mm-hmm. And people you never know the future of people's right. wealth. And a lot of people hold back and you know are very quiet donors, and then they get very interested in larger donations come up. Mm-hmm. But to emphasize... Even the people with average incomes under 50000 are very generous donors. Mm-hmm. And there's also the gift of time. Right. Uh, and we have a great tradition here on Cape Cod. I've seen that very, learned that very quickly of uh, incredible levels of volunteerism. That's another way to give back. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Where would we all be without our volunteers? Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, something you were, you were mentioning too, Rose, was, was uh, you know, cultivating, you know, all of your donors and being in touch staffing can be an issue there for a lot of folks. So how do they do, how do you deal with that? Well, I think that if you have a strong volunteer base and it's uh, talking about how do you get them involved in your philanthropy. I work with a lot of organizations wanting to create a culture of philanthropy among the staff with their boards and their volunteers. And philanthropy doesn't have to be all about asking someone for money. So there's many ways and activities that volunteers can help these nonprofits raise money. Mm. 
and strategy. I'm, I imagine that's that's something you got to think about before you sort of go out and and cultivate these folks. What's your strategy? Well, the first thing a nonprofit should do, and I see this a lot that they don't have it, is they really need to have a case for support. And the reason why they need to do that is to be able to articulate why they need the money, what they're going to use the money for, what is the impact of their gift, and how it's going to benefit mm-hmm. the organization. And every board member, staff member, volunteer should have that, what we like to call elevator speech, to be able to to say to a potential donor, it, to be able to answer those questions. And it doesn't have to be a pretty six-page brochure, mm-hmm. but it should be, they should have something with some testimonials in it. Right. Talk about who is your client and who's benefiting in your cause. Don't talk about your organization. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. And Mike, your organization, you work with a lot of folks who who, uh, who want to make an impact in the community in various ways. Um, and, and is what Rose is saying, does that ringing true for you, for what for your people come to you and say, well, I want my gift to have X impact or I wanted... Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And at the Cape Cod Foundation, uh, donor intent is paramount. We We seek to honor the wishes and intentions of every donor and that's um we we are charged with a, it's a it's an important trust to be a sound steward of their generosity mm-hmm. and to make sure that it has an impact and not just in the short term but for the long haul and uh we try to make it easy for the donor community we give many there are many ways to uh, to give there are many types of funds um that donors can uh, support and um, and so we we try to give as many flexible options and make the Cape Cod Foundation a really attractive place for the donor community to invest in Cape Cod and I think uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't say I think our greatest strength or one of our great strengths is our knowledge of the community and particularly our staff but also our board and they are volunteers mm. so we have a deep knowledge of the nonprofit community and and I believe that the donor community recognizes that and that's why we've grown so tremendously over the last 23 years. We're talking philanthropy with Mike Brojali who's the executive director of the Cape Cod Foundation and Rose Resnick vice president of development solutions of New England. Our toll-free number if you have a question or a comment 866-999 4626. That's 866-999-4626. Our email address is thepoint at wgbh.org. Jared is giving us a call from Brewster. Hi, Jared. Hi. I work for a nonprofit theater uh, on the Lower Cape, and we have many, many wonderful, you know, individual small donors. But something we have uh, trouble with is attracting larger corporate donors, um, which there aren't a lot of, you know, big corporations on Cape Cod. But can you speak to that as to, uh, you know, what other uh, nonprofits experience or how to draw bigger corporate donors to the Cape? Well, the answer to that is corporate donations have been declining in the last couple of years, actually over the last 10 years. So my advice is to look at your, again, your case for support, your funding priorities, and try to find people who are at heads of these corporations that you can get introduced to, to just have a half hour meeting to let them know what you're doing and to answer those questions that I mentioned in the case for support. You need to build a relationship with them, not just because they have money to sponsor you or because you need the money, but I would go in and have a conversation and see if you can develop a relationship. This business is all about relationship building. Yeah, Jared, thanks. Great. Yeah, thanks for the call. Good luck. Helen is calling from Wellfleet. Hi, Helen. Hi, Mindy. Um, I love this topic. I am an enthusiastic donor on the years 
in the years when I make enough money, I have a cyclical income about every two or three years I make enough money. Mm-hmm. And very often um, when I'm looking at who I want to donate to, and I have donated to WCAI. Thank you. <laughs> it interests me that in uh, publicizing the need, whether it's on a you know, uh, fundathon like you guys do on CAI or just in mail I get from various organizations asking for money, how often the fact that you can deduct your donations is not mentioned. Mm. Because for me, that is part of why I feel I can donate. I'm not rich. And I've even called into, for example, CAI and WOMR, both of which I listen to a lot when I'm working, saying, why don't you mention this right up front? Because a lot of people, you know, would see that as a reason Mm -hmm. to donate, I think. Absolutely. And uh, the clients that we work with, that's one of, we have a little checklist of things you must always put on your literature and publications. And it's a simple couple of sentences that you should um, encourage them to put on there that basically your donation mm-hmm. is tax deductible. Uh, absolutely. Even if it's a PS on their your letter, they should have something on their website too yeah. saying that. And Very Helen, important. And Helen, yeah, I, I think uh, you'll probably hear us talk a little bit more about that uh, in, our, in our upcoming pledge drive. But I think a little bit of the confusion is with our thank you gifts, will you, you, whatever your donation is, you have to deduct whatever the value is of that thank you gift from it, and that part is tax deductible. So it gets a little complicated sometimes. That's right. In special events. In special events, yeah. Helen, but thanks for the call, and and, and thanks for supporting WCAI. Sure. Yep, go ahead. That is also not mentioned. Mm -hmm. I found that out the hard way the first time. I just want to give the money, and I want the deduction. I don't want... No matter how nice the mug is, I have a lot of mugs. I want you to have the money. Helen, thank you. We appreciate that. And uh, we'll keep that in mind as we come into our next pledge drive. Thanks, Helen, for the phone call. Barbara is giving us a call from Brewster. Hi, Barbara. Yes, hi. Uh, Maybe you've covered this already, but I was wondering, uh, what proportion of their income do Americans give yearly and also uh, what proportion of their income do Cape Cotters give annually? Uh, the statistics from the Chronicle of Philanthropy, uh, the Cape Cod and Islands give about 3.5%. These are averages, obviously, of their income, and the national average is 4.5%. Yes. Yeah. All right. And- uh, Americans in general? Yep. Yes, the United yep. States. It was yeah. a survey done by Chronicle of Philanthropy. It's on um, the, their website if you wanted to look it up. Yep. Barbara, thanks for the phone call. 866-999-4626. If you'd like to chime in, 866-999-4626. Our email, thepoint at wgbh.org. Let's talk about events for a moment here. I love events. Uh, because they, they raise funds, they raise awareness. So let's talk about some of the pros and cons here to hold events. Who wants to start with Well, I'd I'd be glad to start with that. Um, There are pros and cons. I mean, I think the pros are that an event that's done well can raise awareness, it can cultivate uh, new relationships and existing relationships, and it can raise funds. You can net proceeds. The cons are special events typically take a lot of time. They can be a big drain on staff and volunteer resources, so they have to be thought through carefully. Um, I see special events as, again, a mix of a broad funding portfolio and um, I would caution nonprofit organizations 
um, uh, for, you know, a cautionary flag on basing their, their fundraising strategy solely or mostly on special events. And we see that a lot on Cape Cod, and it makes me nervous for them. Uh, there is competition and among uh, for donors, and donors are getting burnt out on golf tournaments and no silent auctions. No. <laughs> I was just with an organization yesterday that said, we're not doing it anymore. And also the vendors for mm-hmm. silent auctions. So it, I think they're important to do as much as cultivation. Pick one that you do really well and make it your signature event. Don't do 10 every year. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 55 cents on the dollar when you're looking at a special event. And major gifts is 10 cents on the dollar to raise. Mm-hmm. So organizations, my advice is review the purpose and the return on investment that you have. And does that... Uh, does that special event generate more than 15%? If it does, about 15%, it's okay. Cape Cod, it's about 25%. Mm. So they really think, how many events do you host a year? Are you attracting new attendees? And are you following up with these attendees to ask them for annual gifts? Don't just throw a party and that's it. Follow-up is important. Mm, that's and a good tr- point. And track it and then decide that's a, what that's you want to do. That's right. important point. Right. Let's talk about the role of boards uh, in a nonprofit. Uh, governance, operations, fundraising. If one is asked to sit on a board, what are some of the questions we should be asking before committing? What is, what is the role of the, of the board? The role, we do a lot of work with boards on Cape Cod, and and previously to being a consultant, I was the director of development in different organizations and had to work with boards. I think the thing, and I'm going to just speak for Cape Cod because it's a national issue that's going on, but boards need to focus on governance. They have fiduciary responsibilities, ethics, board development, compliance, legalities, continual growth, advocacy, and on and on. It is understandable in human nature, and I will speak for Cape Cod, for board members to want to get into the operational nitty-gritties. And uh, they have hired an executive director to do that. They should be supporting the executive director in that. Boards should not be involved in staffing uh, and and I've be- seen organizations where staff members find it very comfortable to go and raise their grievances to a board member. That is very dangerous to the future of of that board and mm-hmm. that organization and to the ED or, or the president. So when uh, you are looking – so I think the boards need to spend a lot of time on board development. Who do they need? Mm-hmm. on their boards? And philanthropy has got to be a part of it. It's not a, a – a popular topic when I bring it up at a board. But if you do have fiduciary responsibilities as a board member, doesn't that include philanthropy? And it doesn't mean that every board member has to ask for money, but there is some role that every board member should play in that. And But you have to have a few askers. And mm-hmm. that's why I talk about board development. Make sure you're bringing people on your board who are comfortable. So I think it's a two-way street. The board needs to ask these people questions. There's lots of people that sit in on four or five boards on the Cape Cod, and good for them. But then I ask, where's their priority? Yeah. And finally, if you want to be on a board, you should be asking questions about your the expectations for your time, your expectations for what, what you, gift you need to give, uh, how you would be involved in fundraising, look at the strategic plan, and then have, if you're a potential board member, do I have the passion? Is this going to be my top commitment and my top philanthropic commitment? Mm-hmm. Because board uh, organizations moving forward 
are not going to do well unless they have philanthropic support from their boards. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean putting rich people on your boards. Right. You need time, to, yeah. time yeah. talent, and treasure. Yeah, I was going to say, what, yeah. what, are those, what are those three T's? You just said it's right. time, talent, treasure. And mm-hmm. and I think also attracting some younger people on boards. That's, that's, that's a key as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Need some, some, some new blood sometimes yep. in some, some of these. Some Gen Ys. Yeah. To cultivate that next generation. And I appreciate what Rose uh, shared on boards. And uh, you know, I think it's as basic as having a job description for board members and being very clear on roles and, and expectations. Um, I would recommend to listeners uh, John Carver's book on policy governance, and that mm-hmm. talks about the uh, the governing function of of, of boards. And also, um, I would just echo what Rose said um, that I think a good board helps uh, lead the fundraising effort and. Um, and either contributes or helps find con- contributions. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're ha- happy, to, I'm happy to have a, a work with for a board that does that. And there are many fine board members throughout the Cape. So there's a lot of talent here to work okay. with. Uh, we, As we know, we have n- many small nonprofits on the Cape and Islands across this region, uh, and some of them with similar missions. Does this cause competition for limited resources? And, and how can nonprofits with similar missions work more collaboratively? And we, we we talked about this last year, Rose, with that survey. We, we thought there was like 1,000 nonprofits, and we really figured the number was was smaller than that. Seven to 900 yeah. uh, nonprofits functioning year-round on Cape Cod. Yeah. So how do we answer that question of similar missions? Well, it, as a as a grant maker, we encourage uh, nonprofits to collaborate and to submit joint proposals. Um, we, collaboration is key, uh, and to also indicate show us how they can be sustainable, how a project can be sustainable. And I think collaboration can su- mm-hmm. support sustainability as well. So finding out who else is working on similar projects or has similar goals or missions and seeing where you can partner. And, and you, it, that can't always happen, but I think some cases it can. We see many proposals that are, are overlapping to a very high degree. And so, again, encouraging uh, folks in the nonprofit community to collaborate uh, before submitting requests for funding. Mm-hmm. What about social media, Rose? Social media is the craze right now. And we advise our clients uh, to, to not look at, you know, you don't have to have Twitter and Facebook and this and everything that's new that's coming out. Start basic. Have a very good website. Do a lot of things with email. Collect your email addresses. Absolutely have a Facebook site. But be sure, are you doing these things to be active and constantly involved or passive and they're just sitting there? Because people won't come back to your Facebook page or your website unless there's some kind of interaction and they're changing. So again, knowing we have a lot of nonprofits with very small staffs, do the basics, but do something. Right. And of course, you want to you want to try to engage some dialogue when you're doing the Facebook page. Absolutely. Not just, you know. You want to have, yeah. be interactive and that there's somebody in your office or even a volunteer. That's mm-hmm. a great way to give a volunteer something to do, that they're doing weekly updates or at least every other week they're changing something. Yeah. And you want the the donor or the public to go back to your website to see that there's something interesting. Exactly. Time goes by so fast, doesn't it? Rose Resnick, Vice President of Development Solutions of New England, and Mike Brajali, Executive Director of the Cape Cod Foundation. Thank you both for uh, being here and sharing your expertise with us. We appreciate it. Thanks Thank for you, having. Mindy. I'm Indy Todd. Thanks for listening.